0: That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said.
1: Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures.
0: I'm Jamil Zaki, and my dilemma is, how do I get my kids to stop being frenemies and start being just good old-fashioned friends? (laughs) And how old are they? Uh, My older kid is four, and my younger one is two and a half, and the little one idolizes the big one, but I think that she sort of thinks that maybe the best way to show her admiration is to sometimes just show that she can also be the boss, and so she tries to (laughs) irritate her big sister, and she's extremely successful at it.
1: So, it sounds like you're describing my childhood. My sister and I were not quite Irish twins, but we were close. Close enough in age for me to bother her by wanting to be just like her when I was younger. I wanted to find out what music she was listening to and what TV shows she liked. And we were also close enough in age for us to be competitive. Competing against each other for sports, teams, and otherwise. And that is what makes it tough. My hope for you is that your daughters have different interests and passions and then support each other in them and are great friends who love to go to each other's games and concerts and dance recitals. Because it's tough to be super close in age and have one or the other stealing a roster spot or first chair in band or the dance solo from the other. If they end up being into the same things, you might be in for a long wait before they're really close. Because it wasn't until after college that my sister and I realized that having a lot in common meant we would actually like each other if we hung out. Before that, we were just too competitive with one another. But maybe, just maybe, if you smother both of your girls with tons of great feedback and make them confident in whatever they do, it'll be easier for them not to feel competitive. They'll just thrive on their own. Or maybe, just maybe, one will be really good at stuff and the other will suck and then it will be really easy because there'll be no way to argue. It'll just be, you know what, the same for me. I, I don't want that for you. I don't want your, your kids to suck at stuff. It just It might be easier for you, though. So uh, good luck with that. The Kamish has spoken. This week's guest is Jamil Zaki. He's an associate professor in the Department of Psychology and at the Stanford Social Neuroscience Lab. He has a new book called The War for Kindness, talking about how empathy is in short supply these days. We're doing a lot more hating than understanding. In fact, studies show that we're less caring than we were even just 30 years ago. So we talk about whether empathy actually makes sense in terms of evolution is it hardwired or can it evolve with our experiences? Also how stressful situations affect people's capacity for empathy, how changes to our lifestyle, like living in cities, living alone, seeing too much suffering on social media, how that can affect our kindness and can even result in inaction. If we get overwhelmed by it, talk about what we can do to spread empathy as it's declining, why we sometimes even have to shut off empathy for self-preservation in certain situations. Uh, also Some interesting studies, one of them showing how long-term practices can change how you feel about others and helping them through difficult times and the kindness you show. But more importantly, maybe, how a study about Manchester United fans proved that what you're thinking about and reading about and watching right now can actually affect your behavior immediately after. It's a really interesting conversation. He's super smart, and it's one we really need right now, so I hope you enjoy it.
0: That's what she said.
1: I'm super excited to talk to Jamil Zaki because this follows with a long line of topics that I've been doing on my podcast, and and I think you guys seem to be giving me such great feedback about it, so I think this is going to be another one that you're really interested in. I want to start with, you know, it's fascinating to me as I get older how much I'm interested in psychology, but it's not something as a younger person I would have ever imagined as a job. And so I'm curious, when you were growing up and you were a kid, what did you think you wanted to be?
0: Oh, the first job that I wanted was as a bank teller. So this will this will age me. But uh, when I was a kid, my uh, my mom used to sort of go sort of drive. There was there were drive-through sections to a bank, right? And you would like take some money or whatever and put it in a little tube, and it yeah. would go and it would like pneumatically shoot up into the ceiling, and then the bank teller on the other side of the glass would like receive it. And I was just like, wait a minute you mean that this person's job is to work with an incredible system of pneumatic tubes? (laughs) So that was my first aspiration. Um, And then, you know, I guess one thing that that, um, you might have heard from other psychologists that you've had on is that a lot of us sort of get to where we are, we, we sort of figure out early on that we like talking to people or thinking about people, and people seem to like talking to us. So I just remember as a kid, sort of lots of people telling me about their problems and their aspirations and kind of feeling like, wow, um, this sounds like what a psychologist does. It, I guess, helps that my mom, who was driving me to the bank, was also a psychologist. Um, so uh, so I, I, you know, I kind of thought for a while that I would be maybe a, a psychiatrist or a therapist. And then I realized that at least for me, it's really tiring to listen to people's problems all the time. Um, and yeah. so I decided to study people instead of sort of helping them one at a time.
1: Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, so you went to school at Boston University and Columbia and Harvard. So you liked studying also, which is a big part of the job <laughs> research and, and being in school. Um, were you, would you consider yourself a normal student at those places? Were you, were you so aspirational about your your academia that you that you skipped all the other parts of college or did you get into other things outside of psychology?
0: Oh, I was absolutely not a great student until <laughs> grad school. So I mean I was not not a great student in college at all. I, I I sort of went rogue and decided that even though I was majoring in neuroscience, my real passion was writing fiction, so I wrote some just truly awful short stories and novels. I've had the misfortune of running into them again more recently. <laughs> and God, that is really some terrible prose. Um, and, and I also, um, turns out, was a musician um, for a long time. Um, I actually played try in the marching band of the Framingham High School Flyers. I oh, believe wow. the alma mater of your colleague, Katie Nolan, actually. Um, yes! But... <laughs> she was doing...
1: She was doing uh... Uh, rhythmic dance competitively while you were in the marching band. So you guys probably uh, ran in the same social circles.
0: Yeah, maybe they were. I think they were much better than we were, and certainly we were both better than the football team. But um, yeah. but so, so I ended up playing in a bunch of bands in high school and in college. I sort of. Paid my expenses um, by touring with a with a sort of regional band. Um, so oh, cool. they'd pick me up every Thursday and um, and drop me off every Sunday night, and I sort of structured my class schedule around it. But I actually like missed a, a, fi- a final exam, like the you know, one of those exams that's like forty percent of your grade because I was. Oh, no. <laughs> playing a, an important gig. I was like this is more important. So, no, terrible college student and um it just thank really um am very grateful because um I sort of discovered my Real passion within psychology after college, um, and uh, sort of ran into this paper i 'm happy to talk about it, it was a scientific article that just blew my mind and sort of set me on the path that i 'm on now and i 'm just so lucky that i that I was able to find uh, my mentor at Columbia who took a chance on me. I would never accept myself to a PhD program, uh, you know, if if I could see my resume (laughs) at the time I was applying, Um, but he did. And ever since grad school, then I kind of got real driven and and really interested.
1: And that's where you sort of thought uh, sometime in that grad school area, I'm less interested in being a psychologist as in studying psychology and humans.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, probably a little bit before then, but definitely by the time I got to grad school, I was locked in.
1: Yeah. Okay. So let's go back to that growing up. And you have such an interesting story that starts out your book, The War for Kindness, talking about learning empathy and understanding two sides in a way that's probably very uh, relatable to many people, which is growing up as a child of divorce and having the two sides warring for affection and support and to be on, on their side. So briefly talk about that.
0: Yeah. So Uh, My parents come from really different cultures. My mom is from Peru and my dad is from Pakistan. And they met um, sort of after they had uh, enrolled in grad school together in Pullman, Washington, of all places. And, you know, I think that their relationship was largely about how foreign they each felt in the U.S. Um, But as they sort of became more comfortable with their new country, I feel like they realized how little they have in common, which is... Knowing them both very little, uh, and so they <laughs> um, they started breaking up when I was eight, uh, but didn't finish until I was twelve. And I'm their only child, so I had this experience. I think a lot of children of divorce have, which is that you're sort of stuck between two parallel universes. You know, so when I would be with my mom, I'd. Try to figure out what mattered to her and then make it matter to me, you know, sort of show her that I cared about her, that, that, you know, that, that, that she mattered to me. But then when I got to my dad's house, those same rules that I was using to connect with my mom totally broke down and I would have to like readjust. And it was, it was really hard. I mean, it was really hard as a kid, you know, that that, like emotional labor is difficult. Um, But I knew that for all of our sake, I had to keep on trying. And so I kept on working at trying to kind of tune myself to their different emotional frequencies and eventually got really good at it and sort of managed to keep, you know, not keep our whole family together, but keep my connection to each of them um, sort of intact, even during this difficult time.
1: You at a younger age than most sort of began to understand that you were sharing experiences with them. There was a split of the family that affected you in different ways, but you were still going through it at the same time with with someone who also was experiencing it. Um, so at a young age, you you certainly learned the empathy of of understanding why your parents would behave that way. Do you feel like looking back now, they did not have enough empathy? They did not understand what they were putting you through and requiring of you?
0: Yeah, uh, you know, I wouldn't say that. One of the things that we can talk about later, if you want, is the relationship between stress and empathy. You know, I mean, when you're in real distress, really, you know, when you sort of feel as though everything's crumbling around you, um, it sort of can make you feel like you need to focus on yourself and on just surviving. And it's hard to find the room in your mind for other people and for curiosity about their experiences. And, you know, when I think about my, parents and the way that they were behaving. No, they didn't do everything perfectly. But I challenge you to find anybody who handled their divorce perfectly without any sort of damage to anybody else. But I know they were both trying so hard. I also know that they were both in pain. All three of us were. And, you know, I think that any time that they behaved less than perfectly, I don't chalk it up to them being unempathic because I know that they both cared about me and still do. I I chalk it up to them being lost a little bit in their own suffering.
1: Well and I think on a on a not so acute level that's what happens to many of us in life like our early 20s are who am I how am I going yeah. to make money what am I doing with my life and sometimes that manifests not an outright cruelty but other people making fun of them or finding ways to to build yourself up based on you know feeling better than other people and then you get older and you get settled and you feel comfortable and there's less stresses in terms of you know what What's my job and who am I? And you all of a sudden realize that you want to spread empathy and kindness and consideration for other people. Um, and some people are like that preternaturally from a young age, and I'm impressed by them. But um many more as I'm approaching the age where people are much more secure, they're all getting to be much nicer. It's like yeah. it happens yeah. all at once for a lot of people.
0: One of my friends always says that kindness is is uh, easy on a full stomach. You know, that, yes. w- that when you are satisfied with yourself, yeah. you can reach out to others. And a lot of us earlier in our lives are really hungry, you know, whether it's hungry for actual food or for success or for an identity. and Validation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that can make life feel like a competition, right? And and I think that if you feel as though you're in this constant state of worrying whether you're measuring up to the person next to you, it's really hard to sort of to make room for compassion.
1: So let's talk about competition. Is kindness smart? Is empathy by way of evolution something that you can believe is ingrained and genetically passed on because it suits us?
0: Yeah, I love this question. So, I mean, there's this stereotype that many of us have, which is that, yeah, we'd love to be nice. You know, it's good to be kind. It's great to feel compassion. But deep down all the way in our genes is is locked this secret, which is that the only way that we can really survive and thrive is to be cutthroat, you know, to do for ourselves and to forget about everybody else, that life is a competition. And it's interesting because that actually requires us to misunderstand how evolution works. It turns out that yes, animals um, compete with each other at some level to survive, But really, one of the best strategies that we can have for competition is to work together right? I mean, animals are not alone. And some of the most successful animals, you know, in nature, and I'll say that we are the most successful animal got to where we are, not by sort of working as individuals um, against other animals, but by banding together and cooperating, because together we can do things that no one animal can ever dream of doing alone. And even now, there's all sorts of scenarios in which we think that competition is the rule, but actually cooperation is key to success. So in, in business, this is true. Could talk more about that. Even in contexts like war or competitive sports, right? I remember there's this quote from Bill Bradley, I think, who was on one of the championship Knicks teams in the 70s. And he talks about sort of a team championship runs in the face of what we think of as selfishness and self-reliance. He said, um, "He said, if the team succeeds, then every individual succeeds. But yeah. the opposite is not true, right? And sort of yeah. the way to succeed as an individual is to be part of something that is greater than yourself.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we even see in certain situational uh, cases where Things that, that that come from different places, different animals and tribes and whatever, uh rely on each other in in cases where they need each other because it's the only way to survive. We you know we see that all the time. So, yeah, I mean, it, it feels clear that it's something that is evolved and is 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 required, even though, you know, Darwin might say that if you help others at the expense of yourself, then you die and then you don't pass <laughs> on the genes of being a nice, kind, empathetic person. And then, you know, all the a-holes move on. Um But I, I think, that, you know, those are very specific. You don't always have to die and martyrdom is not required, right, in order to be uh, helpful and empathetic. Um, talk about the, the Roddenberry hypothesis that you write in your book and how that relates to all of this.
0: Oh, I'd I'd jump on any chance to talk about Star Trek. So as a (laughs) a kid, (laughs) one of the places that I found solace um, as a really dorky um, preteen was in in the show Star Trek The Next Generation, which, again, dates me as being totally ancient. But, you know, on that show, there were these two characters. Um, One was the ship's counselor, Deanna Troy, who was like this, you know, to use your term, preternaturally empathic person. So she could like immediately sort of feel other people's emotions, and as a result, knew exactly what everyone else was feeling. And then on the other side, there was my favorite character, Data, um, this android who didn't feel emotions, and as a result, was kind of colorblind to what other people felt. And, you know, importantly, neither of these characters could do anything about it, right? Right. Deanna Troy was was a Betazoid, so she was, like, genetically predisposed to empathy, and and Data's lack of empathy was, like, literally programmed or hardwired into his, you know, uh, what is robotic brain. Um, and and I, I kind of feel like that's the way that many of us, including psychologists and neuroscientists up to a few decades ago, thought about people. You know, we thought that how smart you are, how neurotic you are, how, um, how empathic and kind you are, those are all sort of Part of you, like you have some level of intelligence, some level of kindness and empathy, and those things are just there to stay. You're born at at that level and you're going to die there. And what that means is that basically empathy is a trait. It's not something that you can change. It's sort of frozen in you.
1: And you disagree with that, like, like. Other, I talk on this podcast uh many times. I've talked about neuroplasticity and my fascination with the idea that you can make yourself happier and more grateful and you can pr- build the parts of your brain that you want. Um And so you're of the opinion that empathy works the same way.
0: Oh, absolutely, and it's not just me, and it's not just an opinion. In my opinion, (laughs) um, you know, there's tons of evidence, um, you know, for the idea that really, you know, just the notion that we are frozen at all is um, is often wrong, right? The the idea of fixed intelligence and fixed personality and a fixed brain, as you put it, right? These were the sort of um, the these were the the party line. This was the inherited wisdom of psychology and neuroscience up until about. Let's call it 1970, but then since then there's been a flood of evidence that people change way more than we realize. And I think one of the reasons that we don't realize how much we change is because we're the ones notice, you know, we're the ones looking at ourselves and it's hard to notice when something changes really slowly. You know, like I often see this with my, with my kids, you know, other people who haven't seen them for a year will be like, Oh my God, they're huge. <laughs> like, no, they look <laughs> the same as they did yesterday. Yeah. Right? But because, <laughs> because I am seeing them every day, I don't notice that slow change. And I kind of feel like the same is true for ourselves, you know, but it turns out that there's lots and lots of evidence that our intelligence can change over time, our personalities can change, and yes, our empathy can change as a function of our experiences. Now, that's not the same as saying that those things don't have a genetic component. They absolutely do. But I think of our genes as determining our starting point, not necessarily where we end up.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things you write about is um, studies with monkeys and then later studies with um, spouses and an MRI machine. But essentially the idea that once science could tell that empathy is not just a feeling, but literally your brainwaves change when you feel for someone else, whether you're a monkey or a human, um, when they're going through something painful, you actually sort of suffer it yourself, Um could you talk about how much that affected the the study of and the understanding of empathy?
0: Yeah, so a little while ago I sort of told you about one study that kind of changed my life and set me yeah. on this course. The one that you just mentioned is that study. So this was one um, by Tanya Singer and her colleagues. They ran it, you know, um, probably gosh. Seventeen years ago, or something, and they brought romantic couples to the lab and they put one of them in an MRI scanner um, and had had them lie there and then the their partner was sort of sitting next to them, and they could touch hands so and the person in the scanner could see their own hand and could see their partner's hand. And then the scientists, maybe unkindly, uh, started giving them both painful electric shocks. <laughs> um, and, uh, and what they found was that there is a system of brain regions, right, that, that sort of, if you will, light up or become active when you experience pain. They call it the pain matrix, um, reasonably enough. And uh, and so what they found was that when people received shocks themselves, they sort of lit up their pain matrix, not surprising. But the real surprising and profound thing was that these same parts of the brain also lit up when people saw their romantic partner being shocked, right, which was sort of, it it was really a big deal because it made us feel as though, wait, empathy is not just this fuzzy, High in the sky thing that we wish we had or, you know, that we talk about. It's actually happening inside our bodies in this concrete way. And that also paved the way to, to lots of neuroimaging and uh, neuroscientific work, including stuff that, that my colleagues and I have done, sort of probing, well, when do we empathize? With whom do we empathize? And what changes the way that we empathize? being able to use the brain as a concrete way of measuring that those kind of changes, those differences.
1: Well, and, and for some people, it's interesting. I just had this dinner party for a, a group that I'm on the board for, and we have to have Jeffersonian dinners where we only talk about three big topics as a big table. There's no side conversations. And we got into the idea of charity, and a guy at the table and I had completely differing sort of ideas of how what moves us. I'm moved by the individual story. If if I hear about one person or I see one dog, uh, I want to give to that. And he said, I would rather just give to like Bill Gates. I think he's going to figure out the best place to put it or like the Amazon. Right. And you write in the book about how it's overwhelming for some to try to imagine and empathize with great suffering. It's much easier to empathize with one or several that you can connect to. Um, now, currently, we're dealing with large scale suffering, um, whether that's, you know, the children of refugees and being put into into essentially jail cells, whether that's climate change or literally the Amazon burning. Uh, is that problematic for us as for, for people, especially whose brains are kind of the empathy shuts off when it gets too big?
0: Hugely. You know, so, um, you know, we talk about sort of evolution and how e- evolving connection with each other could be helpful. And that's true. The tricky thing is that empathy, human empathy evolved in a time when we lived in tiny groups of people. So if you saw someone suffering, you could make a difference. And if it, right, one of the problems is that now we're trying to adapt that ancient Set of emotional impulses to a modern world where you know we it might where those two things might not be well calibrated right so you know now as you say we're inundated with sort of stories of suffering and and not just one person suffering like thousands or millions or potentially billions of people when you think about climate change suffering and it's hard to feel as though you can make a difference in that context and that can take the experience of empathy and instead of pointing it towards action, towards uh, what can I do to help here? Instead it points you to towards stress and exhaustion and eventually numbness, right? Which we can call compassion fatigue or burnout. Right. And, and so there's lots of cases in which, you know, and I certainly experienced this myself where, you know, it just feels like too much. And, you know, I think there was a, a poll that came out um, last year that seven out of 10 Americans have news fatigue, you know, just like, oh, yeah. just like scrolling through endless stories of pain and heartbreak. You just feel like, well, I'm, I, you know, we're all we're all done. And I, I, I'm I, one of those seven out of 10. I'll tell yeah. you. what. But, I mean, this is why it's so important to remember that empathy is a skill, right? Because there are these big barriers in the way of it, especially modern life puts these barriers in the way to connecting, including, but not limited to that sense of being overwhelmed, but there are still things that we can do about it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I absolutely have that. It's it's news fatigue. I I usually now have to get my news with a spoonful of sugar from you know John Oliver or or Samantha Bee or something because the straight stuff is just too much right now. There's too much, and it's too um overwhelming. You mentioned the the sort of smaller communities, and there are many more people living in cities. There are many more people living alone, and even though we're in contact with more people than ever, whether that's online or in person. We're not as connected to them. And a couple of years ago, the author, Sebastian Junger, was in Chicago for Ideas Week and talked about his book, Tribe, and how there's a number of examples, one of the most noteworthy being uh, veterans who have PTSD come home and feel alienated at home and would rather actually be back at war. And there was no explanation for that until he so started digging deeper to see that maybe our species was meant to live in groups of about 30 to 50 people who rely on each other for all of the things that we need in life comfort, a sense of meaning, um, knowing each other. And that's the life of a soldier, basically. Now, our our groups of people are much larger, our connections are more tenuous. And like you said, we don't know necessarily all the people that we could help or hurt. Um, and we don't really see them again, in that city life, you're not going to, you're not going to, you know, if I give someone the finger and then they pull into the same garage as me, then I'm like, yeah, maybe I should stop giving people the finger when I'm driving because <laughs> they might live in my building, which is an actual thing that happened once. But for the most part, you're just kind of numb to all the people around you because you might not see them again and you don't know who they are or anything about them, which is very different than growing up in a small community. Is that part of the reason that empathy is a, is something we have to work harder for now?
0: I think so, yeah. I mean, I, I think there there are all these natural triggers to caring for each other so and some of them are not that useful these days like it's easier to care about people who look like us than people who don't but that of course can lead to things like race bias right when it's in a context like our modern world also like you say repeated interactions a sense of interdependence with each other a sense of accountability that that if we act unkindly, like giving someone the finger that we might pay a cost. Maybe we'll, our reputation will get worse or maybe right. we won't be able to be part of that community as much as we were before, right? These are all things that, you know, I call, I call those ingredients of social life, empathy's primordial soup, right? I mean, this is sort of this packed with ingredients that make it easy to care for one another, but those ingredients are disappearing from life, and it's ironic, right, that, that uh, you know a soldier would have to return to what we think of as one of the cruelest contexts in human life—war in order to find that type of connection, that type of connection to a group of people who really count on each other. But, I mean, that story is totally, you know, it it jives. I remember, I think that's the end of the movie The Hurt Locker as well, right, where Jeremy Renner sort of is, he's returned from war and then he's in the grocery aisle looking at cereal and he's just by himself in this sort of really transactional, consumer-driven world where, you know, it doesn't feel like he has that connection and then he's right back um, on the battlefield afterwards, right? So, I mean, yeah. th- th- I, I, I agree with that. That's sort of part of the problem and that that's why we need to sort of work hard to ask ourselves, how can we get back to that sense of connection? And, you know, I mean, there are lots of ways to do it. One example, to go back to the idea of, you know, to the example of soldiers Is um, peer counseling, right? So a lot of soldiers feel as though they have that itch to get back to battle because that's where they they can find that camaraderie again. But there's another path um, that many find, which is sort of counseling other veterans who have PTSD, right so finding community um, back home with people who have shared their experiences and who they can help right that idea that their suffering that their empathy is not useless that they can make a difference for somebody can be huge right and so i think all, what what all of us have to ask ourselves is yes it might be harder than before to find that tight knit 30 to 50 person community but it's not impossible and so we should ask ourselves where is it for us
1: yeah, I want to get back into that, you know, what you just mentioned, uh, peer counseling and how trauma can make you more or less empathetic. But but I wanted to to first say, you know, you, you we were talking about the war side of things and there is probably also this other element of returning soldiers where they have become hardened to certain things in life out of necessity. So, you talk about how Someone who has to cause pain or suffering, whether it's literally someone who works on a death squad and 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 administers the death penalty to uh, someone who for an experiment or a study has to give someone a little bit of a shock that they over the course of doing that choose or their brain chooses to be less empathetic, to dehumanize the person that they're doing this to. Is that a choice? Or is that self-preservation? Do you believe that there is an evolutionary reason that our brains do that? Or are we choosing to do that?
0: Uh, You know, I I would say both. So, you know, in in psychology, we talk about proximal and ultimate causes for a behavior. So an ultimate cause is why do your why are your genes telling you to do this? Why is it smart for you evolutionarily to do this? And approximate causes, why do you choose to do it in the moment? And those can be different, right? So like, the prime example of this is sex, right? Like, we have sex for the ultimate reason that, um, you know, it keeps us, it keeps our genes sort of moving forward. But that's not probably the reason that people would give for why they have sex is more proximate than that. And likewise, I feel like, you know, if you're causing harm to somebody, your empathy will be poisoned into guilt and even self-hatred, right? And so as a survival mechanism, perhaps programmed into us by evolution maybe in a circumstance like that, you might want to shut down your empathy. You know, I would Mm -hmm. say like the the linebacker who empath who feels the pain of a running back would be a terrible tackler. Right. (laughs) In order to get their job done, they need to shut down their empathy. So it, it becomes sort of mission critical to turn off this part of our humanity. And, and it's not only when you harm people um, you know, it, it, in order to make them worse off, um, it's even like when you harm people for their own good, if you will, so like a surgeon, mm. right? right? Think about a surgeon who's incising with a patient or in psychology, we have exposure therapy. If somebody's scared of spiders, you basically make them get closer over several sessions to like a tarantula until they eventually (laughs) touch it, you know, and that's like, you're causing enormous pain in this person, but for their own benefit in the end, even that type of causing pain, though, can be really distressing for the physician or counselor. And so they have to sort of maybe shut down their empathy, at least momentarily
1: yeah, you talk about that in the book to people who work in trauma units or even psychologists who won't schedule uh therapy sessions with very depressed people at the end of the day because of the desire not to take that home and how difficult it can be to shut off your empathy um after after working with someone like that so so let's go back to to the trauma and how that affects people you know, oftentimes we hear about people who have gone through something terrible and then they decide to change the course and path of their life. Um, I had a, a great woman I work with, Carrie Potts here, who still works for ESPN and in PR, but she's also devotes tons of her time to speaking out about sexual assault, to trying to protect people who are traveling outside the United States in the ways that laws haven't previously, if they undergo something like that, because of her own personal experience. There's also the reverse. And, and there's often that that stigma or that cliche of hurt people hurt other people. Um, how can we control that? Can you work with people after a trauma to try to make it so that they're the kind that help and not the kind that continue the pattern?
0: Yeah, it's a it's it's such an important. Topic And I, I want to be careful here to say a couple of things first, um, you know, the, the, after trauma, after people experience trauma, some develop really severe PTSD and are really sort of, you know, um, almost, you know, really, they just suffer enormously and, and they're, they're paralyzed a little bit by that suffering other people experience post-traumatic growth and actually find deeper meaning in life and sort of, uh, you know, connection with others and so forth, by, they basically grow through their trauma. Um, that is not to say in any way that trauma is a good thing for people, right? I mean, I'm not sort of advocating for the experience of trauma. I also want to be really clear that there are many, many factors that produce each of those outcomes and so by saying that certain choices statistically make it more likely to experience post-traumatic growth, I in no way mean to blame anybody who does not experience post-traumatic growth. Um, So just want to be clear about those things. With that preamble, yeah I mean I think that your colleague's story is is such a powerful one and you know one of the things that's really doubly um, disheartening about trauma is how isolating it can be. You know, when you go through something really terrible, not only do you go through that and relive it sometimes in your mind, but it's one of the hardest things to talk about. I mean, a lot of people don't want to hear someone's story of war, their story of assault, their story of losing a child or battling a severe illness, right? Those things are... Real downers. And and, and more than that, I mean, they they sort of ruin other people's moods. And so many people who suffer trauma don't talk with anybody about what they've been through. And again, statistically speaking, that is a real risk factor for PTSD and for the worsening of one's experience for making that trauma something truly crippling. Oftentimes, people do feel like there's somebody who they can talk to, whether it's a counselor or a family member. And that sense of being supported is one of the strongest predictors that people will psychologically survive that trauma. It's also another way that you can find that connection with people and sort of escape the isolation of trauma is by helping others who have been through it once you find the strength in yourself. And so, you know, for the book, I interviewed lots of people who have been through trauma and it's just amazing their stories, you know, where when they start to help other people, you know, like somebody who's who was addicted to opioids but has been clean for five years, counseling someone who's been clean for five days, that counselor can serve as, a, as, a, as an example for the person who's really in the thick of it right now. You know, They right. show them a future that has hope, but it also helps the person who's counseling because they say, wow, look at how far I've come. Look at the strength I have if I can help somebody else. Yeah. And that realization of one's own strength can be an extremely powerful path, not just to healing, but to turning trauma into, into a real opportunity for growth.
1: Well and as we talked about before it's also that muscle that you're using that becomes stronger and comes to you more easily uh that that sort of neuroplasticity of if I'm going to feel for someone else and help and can, and console someone else that will come more 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 naturally to me there was that study in Germany that you talked about in the book scanning brains uh, after a compassion meditation program and it not only left people wanting to be more empathetic in the way that they behaved every day, but also the actual structure of their brain revealed differences because they had spent time on on meditation and compassion.
0: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, as a fan of neuroplasticity, I figured you would like that study. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, because it, it shows, right, that really, you know, I mean, I think about the, the idea that empathy can change is really powerful. Now, let's be clear that that means that you can gain it. Or you can lose it, right? Like the experience of chronically harming other people. If you think of empathy as a muscle, it could cause your empathic muscle to atrophy. And the experience of helping others or sort of doing compassion meditation over and over again could strengthen it. And so uh, the way I think about it is we all have choices to make about what type of person we want to be and whether we want to sit on the empathic couch and kind of go soft or uh, go to the empathy gym and, and, and try to get stronger.
1: We'll be right back with more That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Hiring can be a slow process. Cafe Altura's COO, Dylan Miskowitz needed to hire a director of coffee for his organic coffee company, but he was having trouble finding qualified applicants. So he switched to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates to find you. It finds them for you. Its technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. So you get qualified candidates fast. Dylan posted his job on ZipRecruiter and said he was impressed by how quickly he had great candidates apply. He also used ZipRecruiter's candidate rating feature to filter his applicants so he could focus on the most relevant ones. And that's how Dylan found his director of coffee in just a few days. With results like that, it's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at their web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash said. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash said. ZipRecruiter.com slash said. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. That's what she said. There's another fascinating study that's almost instant, which is to say that what's in your brain and how you're thinking about things can affect how you behave right after that. And that's the one with the Manchester United fans.
0: Yeah, I, I love this study, right? So one of the things is is that you know we can work for a super long time on our empathy through these concerted practices, but also like the choices that you make every day um, to connect with or not connect with people can turn into habits, right? Like if you not to pick on you Sarah, but if you if you give people the finger a lot of traffic, then <laughs> that's a little habit. I stopped. You know, that, I, I learned my <laughs> lesson. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, but that's that's a that's a uh, Little choice that you make in the moment uh, on how you're going to relate to somebody, how you're going to, and so now you've made the choice maybe to relate differently to people. I I, I heard someone say, you know, if someone cuts me off in traffic, now I think, gosh, I hope your day gets better because you must be more stressed out than I am. Right, And, and just that little choice to see the situation differently done over and over again, turned into a habit, I think can potentially make a difference. But, you know, speaking of those choices, this study that you mentioned is one of my favorites um, because it shows how empathy is not just about how you think about other people. It's also how you think about yourself, right? Uh So each one of us carries around at any given moment, like all these different identities, right? Like you might be a chiropractor and a tuba player and an Ohio resident and a mom or whatever. <laughs> that, I mean, that's a, kind of a weird combination, to be I'm honest. I'm sure it's but, out yeah. there.
1: And yeah, hello right, to whoever exactly. you are out there that you just described perfectly that is super weirded out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, so uh, it, though each of those identities also carries with it, with it a tribe, a group of people who we share an identity with, right? So, and, and importantly, some of those identities are bigger than others, right? So if I think of myself as a Stanford dude, well then, during the big game, which I believe is Saturday, you know, I'm just like, out to get Berkeley, you know. I just, I, I, they are not worthy of any of my empathy. But if I think of myself as a Californian, well, then we're part of the same. We're part of the same team, actually, mm-hmm. in a way. And so there was a study conducted with rabid fans of Manchester United, the soccer team, right, um, in in England. And so they they asked people to write about why they loved Manchester United so much. And then they said that they would walk across campus and watch some film, like some highlight reel of Man U playing, which sounds pretty cool. And so they're walking across campus, and, um, and they see a jogger who appears to twist his ankle and then fall to the ground, writhing in pain, right? And the trick was that this person was not a real jogger, but an actor who was trained to pick out whether the Manchester United fan stopped to help him. And sometimes this jogger was wearing a Man U jersey. <laughs> sometimes he was wearing a jersey of Liverpool, who at the time was like the rival for Man U. And then sometimes he was wearing a blank jersey. And what they found was that Man U fans basically helped fellow Man U fans 80% of the time, but were more than happy to like step over a Liverpool fan as he like you know rolled around on the ground in the fetal position. Um, But you know, which which is what we would call tribalism empathy and kindness towards people who are like us, and maybe, you know, indifference or even cruelty towards people who are unlike us. I mean, I think we don't have to look very far to see examples of tribalism sort of gripping our culture. Right now. And, you know, if the study had stopped there, it would just be like, well, I guess we are all screwed because (laughs) we only care for people who are just like us. But the thing I love about the study is that they ran it again. And this time they instead um, told people, you know, um, talk about why you love soccer so much. And so this is a separate group of people writing about soccer instead of Man U. And then they have them walk across campus and again have, these, have an actor with one of these three jerseys sort of fall to the ground in pain. And what they found is that people who had written about why they loved soccer, even though they were Man U fans, became much more likely to help, uh, people, to help a person was wearing a Liverpool jersey. Now, they still didn't help the person with the blank jersey, which I guess <laughs> because, like... If there's a if you don't like here, soccer,
1: to, we don't like you. <laughs> yeah.
0: It's better to be part of any tribe than part of right. none, I suppose, right? But I mean, I, I guess the deep message here is that if we can think of ourselves even for a moment through a broader lens, not just as part of our narrow identities as a member of a race or gender or age group or political party, but broader than that, well, then we can sort of increase the diameter of our empathy, if you will, right? And sort of reach out to people, even if they, on the surface, are different from ourselves.
1: We're sort of running out of time, but uh, uh, that's a perfect message going forward, is this idea of, obviously, it it feels uh, unreachable for some, but the idea of we're all human beings, we're all part of the same world, we're all part of the same planet, you know, how are we working together instead of against each other? And then on a smaller scale, you talk about, Things like reading fiction books from the perspective of someone different from you, acting or, or learning an art form that connects you to people who are different from you. Um, that feels to me like something on an everyday basis people can do um, to just feel more connected and empathetic to those who are not part of their quote unquote tribe.
0: I think that's right, and you know, I mean, I, I, I realize that to some people, the idea of seeing someone different from ourselves as just a person like us feels like comically naive or impossible because we're just so broken in half as a culture. Right. But I mean, my thing is, I don't think that it's naive. I think it's necessary. You know, there there are there there's a real looming crisis that we face, and and you know. It, each one of us has a choice to make, right? I mean, it might feel difficult. It might even feel impossible to reach across whatever divide we're looking at. But we can do it. And 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 if we don't, things are going to get a lot worse. And so, you know, the, the way I see it is, you know, I, I'm, I'm not like super optimistic or pessimistic about the future. I think that we can keep on, our social fabric can keep on tearing or it can start to mend. I don't know which one of those will happen, but I do know that more than we realize, it's up to us.
1: So if it's both somewhat genetic, but also can be learned, but also can be triggered by any number of things, what goes around every day around you, the traumas you've suffered, the people around you, can we be mad at people who are not empathetic? Because I am. I hate people who aren't empathetic. I should probably empathize with why they're not (laughs) empathetic. But that's where my empathy ends, I suppose, is understanding people who refuse to understand other people.
0: Well, let's go back to the phrase you used earlier. Hurt people hurt people. Right. I mean, I think that one of the hardest things is to empathize with people who are acting really cruelly in the moment. But, you know, I think that, again, one of the most generous and powerful things we can do is ask ourselves well, why? Why are they acting that way? Who? What's their story? You know, and I think that when we can cultivate that curiosity about people, even when they do things that anger or upset us, we start to uh, we start to put ourselves on the track to create the type of change that we'd like to see in them. I mean, there was a in the book I write about a ex hate group member. This person was a yep. neo Nazi, and receiving compassion from a Jewish person changed his life and set him on a path to reform. Now, that Jewish person had no obligation to empathize with, um, with the person I write about in the book, right? I mean, you don't have to empathize with people who hate you or would prefer to see you annihilated, right? Of course you don't. But when that person made that decision to sort of try to be the bigger human being, to be curious, to be empathic, even when they didn't have to, they changed a life, right? And I think that when we make choices like that, we can change other people's lives and we can change our own.
1: Yeah, there's that incredible TED Talk of uh, Megan Phelps Roper, who used to be in the Westboro Baptist Church. She was raised in it. And then the discourse online, instead of hating her back, was to keep showing people not only engaged with her online, but then showed up at the Baptist Church protests and tried to talk to her about why she felt that way. And then she, she really essentially was talked into understanding that she was raised with all this hate and that she didn't actually feel it. It's really remarkable. I actually try to do that sometimes with my Twitter trolls if I'm feeling patient mm. enough. And it worked the other day. I said, I, you know, I don't know. This is an unreasonable response to what I wrote. I'm sorry if you're going through something. I hope it gets better. But that, that's, that doesn't make any sense to respond to me that way, so you must be hurting. I'm sorry. And the guy was like, I don't know how you knew that, but I am, and I'm really sorry, and I shouldn't have responded oh, wow. that way. And I was like, whoa, it actually worked. It doesn't always work, but it's worth trying. It's, it's definitely worth trying. Um Well, before we let you go, you have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. Didn't
0: expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition! (laughs)
1: Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition! That's right, the ten speed questions that everybody gets and nobody expects. Number one, what's your desert island album? You could only have one.
0: Oh, uh, the blue album by Weezer.
1: Oh, nice. Uh, number two, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success?
0: Uh, empathy, is that she Good,
1: good. I, I was going to say, this is the trick question here. <laughs> uh, number three, what would you consider your biggest failure?
0: Oh, God. Uh, um, uh, not visiting home enough or calling my parents enough.
1: Uh, where do they live now? Framingham. Oh, really? Both of them. They stayed yeah. there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that makes it easy, at least. Um, number four, have you ever been in a fist fight?
0: Um, I, I was I was in a boxing match that turned from a sport thing into a fight.
1: <laughs> oh, no. I oh, lost. No, no holds barred. Just like uh, <laughs> yep. rules be damned. That's no good. The gloves came off, literally. <laughs> literally, yeah. Uh, number five, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? Beyonce. That's a very common answer. And you know what? I also appreciate that you chose someone of the opposite sex because almost no one does that. And if you could be anyone, wouldn't you want to know what it was like? Like, come on. Hell yeah. The opposite sex. Just just for once. You could actually say you, you understood what your annoying spouse is saying about being a man or a woman or whatever it is. Um Number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been?
0: Oh gosh! Um, it's definitely sometime in middle school. Um, oh, I remember um, getting a one hundred on a quiz and having the teacher call out my name and make me go up to the front of the class while everybody snickered.
1: Really? That's the most embarrassed you that being being recognized for your amazingness.
0: No, I was like had no friends, and this was just it felt <laughs> like they were just piling dirt onto me while I was six feet under socially. <laughs>
1: That's funny. In college my teacher handed back all of our, our, our articles we'd written. He was very old and he said very loudly, You're the best writer in the class. And it was a highlight of me for my life. So Ooh. I think that's that says differences in who we are. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> uh number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve?
0: Um, I'd like to uh be um be more calm. I'd like to, mm. to be better at relaxing.
1: Oh God, me too. Yeah, it's very difficult, and it feels like a waste of time to relax sometimes.
0: Currently Just... on my desk is a book literally called How to Do Nothing.
1: <laughs> oh, I've, I've I've been told to read that. I, I'll have to ask you how it goes.
0: <laughs> You'll love it. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah.
1: Uh, number eight, if you could be the commissioner of life for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society would have to adhere to?
0: Uh, everybody needs to take six months and travel to a different country and help people there.
1: Oh, that's a good one. Well, I'm sure the Mark Twain quote is like the essence of your thoughts on empathy and, and survival of the human race.
0: Oh, yeah. What is it? Like uh, travel, travel is, is, is
1: fatal to prejudice and bigotry and and all of that. Yeah.
0: And that's why people need it so much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's a good one. Uh, number nine, what's the most scared you've ever been?
0: Uh, well, so, oh, I uh, well, I mean, I've had a emergency surgery in the hills of peru once um, for for a condition that would have killed me in the next few hours and let's just say that the operating room where i was was not high tech
1: oh my gosh that is terrifying was and i know when i went to africa they gave us a list and they said if you're in this country and something happens get airlifted to one of these places, don't let them do it there. And I was just like, this is terrifying. Like, what if something bad happens and I'm in one of the countries where I'm not allowed to let them, like, do anything? Uh, Is Peru like that, or is it just the area you were in?
0: Oh, I mean, Lima is like a massive and, you know, really super modern city, as are many places in Peru. I tried to get airlifted to Lima, and they said, you'll die in the helicopter, so you need to do it here. (laughs) Okay, that's... Um,
1: that's an all-timer for the most scared you've ever been. That's a good one. Um, okay. Number 10, what three words would you most hope people would use to describe you? Uh,
0: um, helpful, uh, f- um, fun to be around is not a word. Shoot. Uh, we'll allow
1: it. We'll put some hyphens okay, in okay. there.
0: Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, and, it's, again, I'm, I feel like I'm cheating, but kind, I suppose.
1: Yeah. Those are all good, and they're all they're all very on brand for you. So I appreciate that. That's <laughs> that's good. Um, and then finally, the bonus question: Who would you recommend that I have on this podcast?
0: Oh, I'll go with Jenny Odell, the author of How to Do Nothing. All right, cause, perfect. Cause she's on our mind, anyways.
1: Yeah, that sounds that sounds like something I could use. I may I might have her on right before. Uh, New Year's, It'll be like, you know, that thing where I tell myself next year I'm going to spend more time relaxing and then you know, <laughs> revisit it a year later and realize I've still not done it. But uh, <laughs> it's always worth the effort, right? Maybe if I train my brain enough, I'll finally be able to uh, relax. I'll need to work on the
0: neuroplasticity yeah, exactly. of the, relaxing. That's <laughs> the idea, right? We can learn all sorts of things that, that don't seem like they're learnable, right? Empathy yeah. And relaxing, we'll put on there, too. <laughs>
1: Uh this was so great. I loved chatting with you and the book is fantastic. The War on uh the War for Kindness. Uh and uh keep spreading the good word. I think we need it probably more than ever.
0: Thank you so much. This was really fun. That's what she said.
1: If you're looking for another great ESPN podcast, check out Laughter Permitted with Julie Foudy. This week it's a two for one as US hockey teammates and Olympic gold medalists Megan Duggan and Kendall Coyne join the show. Get the scoop on how the US women's hockey team fought and gained more equitable support. And listen in as a new debate emerges. Is an apple fritter a donut? Be sure to download and subscribe to Laughter Permitted wherever you get your podcasts. That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. This week, complaining. Why am I always complaining about things? I have spent so many episodes of this podcast talking about how our brains are malleable and how what we think about and talk about reshapes our brains So what the heck am I doing spending an entire segment, every single podcast, complaining? One day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this. Literally, because if I keep complaining and sending angry, cranky messages back and forth over the bridges of my brain, strengthening the angry synapses and making it easier to access the crankiness, then eventually I'll just be sitting in a room staring at a wall just complaining to myself about everything, from travel delays to handkerchiefs to people who misuse the word blessed. Then again... It's not really reasonable to expect rainbows and sunshine all the time, right? So there are things in the world that need to be complained about, that are worth complaining about. I don't know if a waiter accidentally gives my food to another table, the woman there takes a couple bites before realizing it isn't hers, and then the waiter tries to give me the same damn plate of food that she ate off of. Instead of having the kitchen make another one, I'm supposed to just smile and not care about all the cooties? I'm doing it again, right? Yeah. Yep, I'm doing it. Well, I guess I just need to make sure I'm spending enough time praising the magic and the beauty, yada, 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 you know, to offset all this complaining. All right, I feel good about what we accomplished today. Complain. Do it. I don't care. Just don't do it too much. There. I fixed it. Check out ESPN's brand new podcast, ESPN Daily, hosted by Mina Kimes. Monday through Friday, she takes a look at the most interesting stories at ESPN in just 20 minutes. Listen and subscribe now to ESPN Daily, wherever you get your podcasts. If you've got a dilemma for the commission to fix, tweet it to me at Sarah Spain or go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe, rate and review and leave the dilemma in your review. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me.
0: Well, that's what she said.